What's up, everybody? Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Pure Sports Pod. This is Matt Wyrick and Kevin Haswell coming at you on a Monday morning following a weekend of some wild basketball games, a big signing in Major League Baseball. We'll get to it all. But first, Kevin, how you doing? I'm doing pretty well. You know, we got All-Star Week coming up for NBA. Uh, I'm excited for that. You know, the dunk contest will be pretty interesting. I'm excited to see um, the likes of, you know, Donovan Mitchell and others. In that dunk contest, so uh, is Zach yeah, Levine in it this year again? He's not. Oh, he's not. So that's... you know, I, I think it's Donovan, Donovan Mitchell's uh, show to steal. But you know, great day. Uh, let's get started. Yeah, we also have James Ferris here on the show today. James, a recurring guest, um, all over the place, but a breeze rider works with us a lot. James, how are you? I'm great. Great to be here, and uh, I'm excited. This is turning into a Monday kind of routine. I like it. So. Yep, we're, we're bringing guests on, it seems like, every show now, and it seems to add a lot of perspective, so definitely enjoying having you on. We're going to start with Major League Baseball. I think this was the biggest news of the weekend. You, Darvish, signing a six-year, $126 million deal with the Chicago Cubs, who lost Jake Arrieta to free agency. Uh, this has been a slow-moving offseason, with this being actually the biggest deal, uh, surpassing the Phillies signing Carlos Santana uh, earlier this year. Surprisingly enough, the Phillies had the most expensive deal of the offseason leading up to today or yesterday. But now we have Darvish uh, on the Cubs, kind of solidifying that rotation. You know, they lost a frontier starter, now kind of had to replace him. They engaged with talks with Arietta earlier in the offseason, but decided to go in a different direction with Darvish, whose numbers haven't been stellar necessarily. I mean, over the past three years, his ERA has sat around about 3.5, 3.6, so not, you know, exceptional numbers. However, his strikeout rate was incredible. Uh, there's a lot of data that suggests that he was getting unlucky, uh, had a good whip, so he still seems to be a, f- a premier starter in the league, certainly one of the best strikeout pitchers in all of baseball, but also a Tommy John survivor, or I guess survivor isn't the right word, but recipient. Um, so, Kevin, what is your takeaway from this deal? Are the Cubs, was this the right move for Chicago? Is it, you know, a deal where they're kind of paying for the first three years and hoping for the best after that? Yeah, I think, you know, he's 31 years old, a six-year deal for a pitcher, especially, you know, with that many innings he has on his arm, especially with all the, you know, international innings he has as well. Um, I'm not sure if I like this deal. I, I think it's more of a replacement for Jake Arrieta. They're, you know, bracing because they're not going to get him. Um, I don't think they really wanted him in the first place. They'd rather have you, Darvish. Um, but he's a nice fill, and I, I like the deal for the next three years, three, four years. But after that, you're going to be paying for, you know, 36 or 35, 36, and 37-year-old, you know, you Darvish that – Probably won't be playing as well because he's got a lot of innings on his arms. But, you know, like you said, one of the best strikeout pitchers in baseball. Um, and, you know, the Cubs are in contention right now. So they really don't have to look towards the future. Um, as of right now, they can just, you know, gather up as much talent as they want, as they as they need. Um, and, you know, make another deep playoff run. James, Darvish had, had a great career with Texas. Um, you know, only managing to pitch four years thanks to that uh, Tommy John surgery, but, you know, finished second in Cy Young one year, ninth in another, uh, three all-star appearances for them. Uh, finally was traded this past season, was bad, not necessarily bad, but not great in the first half. Then in the second half kind of picked it up, had a better strikeout rate um, and, and nine starts with the Dodgers. Do you think Darvish was deserving of this kind of deal? Well, I think alluding... Uh, to what Kevin was trying to say with the Cubs, I think right now this is a great opportunity for them. Won the World Series a couple years ago, and this is really the time where they have to strike. They have a lot of great young talent. Um, And so you, Darvish, certainly the back end of his career, as he gets older, that six-year deal might not look as favorable. But for those first three years, this is the time. This is why the Cubs paid him. Because even though they will be paying him three years, or the back half, of the six-year deal, those final three years might not be as favorable to the team. Those first three years are really where they see some value. I think for the Cubs, they have so many great young players. This is really a time where they have to kind of strike because in baseball, it flip divisions seem to flip-flop almost every year. And even though the Cubs do have a, gr- a lot of great young players and it looks like they'll be set up for their near future, these windows do close rel- relatively quickly. And if they can bolster their rotation, I think it's a good move. Yeah, and, you know, I, I think you look at the contracts they've signed over the years. They're going to have a lot of bad contracts in, you know, five to six years. But, you know, the eight-year deal of Jason Hayward pops out to me. Um, John Lester, a six-year, $155 million, um, with a 20, uh, 2021 team option. I mean, they got these big contracts that, you know, 
at this point, you might as well just get as much talent as you can for for the present, and uh, you know, take the blunt or take the you know worst part of it later on. Cots uh, contracts does say that this deal would not put them over the luxury tax number, so they're not going to be penalized just yet. But it does restrict them for making moves uh, mid-season. Now, a big thing here is that you know. They knew they needed another starter. They they acquired Eddie Butler uh, from the Colorado Rockies. Uh, actually, the name of the prospect that they traded for him was named James Ferris. Uh, oddly yes. enough, uh, but they traded James Ferris and international bonus money um, for Eddie Butler to kind of fill out that rotation. Didn't have great numbers in Colorado, but last year uh, in eleven game, eleven starts, uh, thirteen appearances, had an ERA a little bit under four. So not, you know, decent enough for a number five starter, but by no means a star. So obviously knocking him off the rotation and bringing Darvish in is a great move. Now the team did not want to sacrifice any offensive talent to get, um, you know, a pitcher. They have already stretched their formerly stocked uh, farm system thin. They've now, you know, all their prospects are up now. They're, they're uh, for the most part at least, um, are playing at the major league level. You know, Ian Happ emerged last year as a, um, you know, rookie of the year. I put that in air quotes, uh, candidate. Um, but at the same time, they had, you know, great offensive stars, um, you know, and Anthony Rizzo and Chris Bryant. Uh, Kyle Schwarber fell off a little bit, and, and that was a big disappointment. Javier Baez wasn't necessarily able to replicate that success, also dealt with some injuries. Um, so this is going to be a year where they're going to look for some bounce-back uh, candidates because in the first half, they were actually scoring uh, the fifth least runs in all of baseball. So they had a problem with elite opposition. You remember, uh, if you recall, Anthony Rizzo was hitting leadoff at one point. There was that big spectacle when he hit a couple home runs hitting leadoff. Um, they had Kyle Schwarber start the year off there, but of course he was hitting under 200 um, uh, over a month into the season. So, and Jason Hayward has not been the guy that they signed when they you know, signed him to the big deal. So they're going to really need some bounce back uh, years from some of these guys. I mean, obviously you're going to have your rocks in Contreras, Bryant, and Rizzo. But after that, there's a lot of question marks about this lineup. Is Addison Russell ever going to take a step forward? You know, he used to be held as one of the biggest prospects in the game. You remember he was acquired from the Athletics in the Jeff Samarja deal. Um, when the Cubs were really bad. Javier Baez, of course, had you know an up-and-down career. Hayward needs to bounce back. Schwarber has you know, lost a lot of weight. They're hoping for something out of him. And Albert Almora Jr. and Ian Happ are kind of going to be battling it out for that center field playing time. So there's a lot of question marks about this offense. And as, as good as the Cubs you know, look on paper and as good as they've been, you know, they won a World Series, they were able to make the playoffs, win a playoff series last year, I don't know if I'm completely sold on this offense. Being able to turn things around, I like all these players. I think they all are capable of really good things. But with how some of them performed last year, there's just a lot of question marks, and it kind of leaves me, you know, wondering where the Cubs stand. I think they're definitely above the Brewers and Cardinals, you know, a tier above. But if you know an injury or two hits, I think that this could be a really competitive NL Central race this year. Yeah, and see, I, I see you're being a little pessimistic by mentioning the first half numbers where they weren't as good last year. You know, 7.44 OPS in the first half for a you know below average 99 OPS plus. But second half, they actually, as a team, had 811 OPS with 116 OPS plus. So they really showed in the second half, you know, the team they were meant to be. Um, I think we're going to see more of that second half, half Cubs this year um, than that first half Cubs. I mean, I think their talent and, and their lineup is more indicative of the second half than it is the first half. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a trend there. I agree. They were a much different team in the second half. I mean, at the trade deadline, I mean, at the um, All-Star break, the Brewers were actually in first place. Um, so that was you know something for them to kind of hang their hat on there. I think the Brewers have made significant moves to get better. I do think they need a pitcher, probably two, to be honest. I think they should be in you know discussions with Alex Cobb for sure. Um, and if Jake Arrieta uh, can lower his asking price a little bit, but... Um, what is the, what do you think this has an effect on Jake Arrieta? I mean, this guy, you know, former Cy Young winner, you would think that the team would love to get him back, but there was questions about his velocity at the end of last season. Uh, and moving forward, it, they kind of mutually agreed to part ways. Um, but after, you know, the market proved to be slow, they engaged in discussions again, but Cubs decided to go with Darvish. Where does this leave Arietta? I mean, is he going to be getting you know a six-year deal at the same range of Darvish, or do you think he's going to have to settle for something less? I think honestly, they're both at the same age. Arietta has proved more throughout his career. You know, he had one of the best seasons of a starting pitcher ever, um, especially that second half. I mean, like I said, the same age. Um, I think Arietta can command a little bit more money. I think his deal can probably be up in the hundred and fifty million dollar range, but not much more. 
Um, it's just, I mean, teams are holding out right now. And I, I feel like, you know, trying to say he will get more than $126 million is being a bit op- optimistic, especially, um, you know, where the market's going. But, you know, I could definitely see him getting over what Darvish got. What about you, James? I think, well, I saw the story this morning from Yahoo. Uh, his agent, Scott Boris, Arietta's agent, that is, is reportedly trying to get him the most, more money than Darvish and is kind of positioning him as the top free agent starter on the market. And apparently he was offered a similar deal uh, to what Darvish got and he turned it down. So who knows where he'll land in free agency if someone will make a move for him. Uh, could be a domino, an important domino. I mean, if he goes to even a contender or a team that's kind of on the fringe, it could make a big difference. But as far as the Cubs go, I think they have a ton of talent. They're only uh, a year and a half removed from that 2016 season where their entire infield started in the All-Star game, which is unbelievable. So I think they have a lot of great young players. And the nice thing about baseball is you have 162 games to figure it out, kind of take some time put players in different places, figure out who's working for you and who isn't. I still think uh, Joe Madden, one of the best, if not the best managers in the game, I, I think they'll figure it out. They'll get it together. And I still think in the NL Central, again, these baseball divisions seem to flip-flop every year, but I don't know how seriously we take the Reds. Who knows about the Pirates if they'll come back. I, I do expect the Cardinals will probably make, it, uh, make a postseason push or something, and the Brewers could be interesting. But this is probably still the Cubs' division to lose. They have the most talent on paper. They have the best manager in the game, and I expect them to figure it out. Yeah, the Nats, Cubs, and Dodgers have won the three NL divisions two years running, and at least the Nats and the Dodgers certainly look poised to uh, do so again, and the Cubs are the favorites to do it in the NL Central. Um, but as far as Arietta goes, uh, I think that a lot of teams aren't willing to go the years with him because of his declining velocity. You know, he's a power pitcher guy. He, he has a lot of strikeouts, um, although not, you know, a ton necessarily. He's not a Max Scherzer or a Clayton Kershaw or like that. Um, but he is very good at limiting hits and walks. Um, one of the best um, ho- low home run rates and low hit rates in all of baseball over the past three years. Um, but that hit rate really significantly rose. His whip went from, in 2015, it was 0.865. Last year, it was 1.218. So that's really significant, you know, a 0.4 difference uh, there. So I think that if he's willing, I, I read a report earlier today, that if he's willing to cut back on the number of years but have a high salary uh, for those years, maybe a three-, four-year deal uh, at around you know $25 million per year, I think this is something a lot of teams would be interested in. But as far as having to extend him to, you know, five, six, seven years. I don't see a lot of teams trying to, you know, bid on that. Yeah, you know, I, I definitely see the concern with the declining velocity, but I, I still think he's a very solid pitcher. I mean, even last the last two years when people thought, you know, he quote-unquote struggled, I mean, ERA of 3.1 and, and last year 3.53. I mean, he's still a solid starting pitcher, and, and you know, um, there's a lot of teams out there looking for, for a, start, a third or fourth starter. Um, not that he is, but, you know, on a contending team he might be. Um, but going back to what James was saying, you know, it, it's interesting because uh, the National League Central, while, you know, the Brewers and the Cardinals are, uh, you know, going to be contenders, the National League is very similar to the NFC in football where, you know, there's, there's a ton of teams that can make a push um, towards those last two wild card spots. I mean, like you said, you, you could probably pencil in the Nats and the NL East, um, the Cubs in the NL Central, um, Dodgers, Dodgers in the NL West, and, you know, I'm forgetting one. Well, I mean, you could say the Cardinals, the D-backs and the Rockies and Giants are all in it in the NL yeah, West. Yeah, so, so what two teams would you take from those two wild I mean, teams? that's the thing. You've got because possibly three teams. You look at teams going for it. You know, they, they talk a lot about how there's tanking going on, right, and how there's a huge problem. Let's look at the National League and teams that are going for it this year, aside from those three division leaders. In the NL West, we have the Rockies, we have the Giants, and we have the Diamondbacks. Okay, in the Central, we've got the Brewers and the Cardinals, and in the East, we've got the Mets. And you could say that, you know, Braves and Phillies are not necessarily tanking anymore. They're on the upward trend. So, you know, a surprise year could see them jumping into the conversation. So we have more than half the National League going for it this year. And while we have so much, you know, talent at the top, those wild card spots are so wide open right now. I mean, it's anyone's guess as to who's going to get those two spots. So, um, you know, any of these teams looking to, you know, get a massive upgrade uh, and, and to you know help solidify their their chance in the middle of this 
um, wild card race could certainly get Arietta. And that's only talking about the National League. I mean, the AL, uh, it's a little bit more open. You know, we don't know who's going to win the AL East between the Red Sox and the Yankees. AL Central and AL West are, are pretty locked up between Indians and Astros. But, you know, you have a lot of good teams in the Mariners. Uh, the Rangers are still, you know, in contention. Uh, in the AL Central, there's not really any other team that stands out. But in the AL East, uh, Toronto's going for it. Baltimore's going for it. Uh, Tampa Bay it seems to be tearing down, so it looks like they're not going to be in it this year. But um, there's still a great number of teams, you know, that could d- use that extra push. Imagine, you know, if the Orioles got uh, Arietta back. You know, they need a number one starter. They've needed one for a long time. If he's willing to, you know, cut down on that money, they're losing Machado next year. You know, supplanting him with a guy like Arietta, you know, while not a hitter. They have a pretty a decent offense. I think it's the rotation that really needs to help. So that could be a huge difference maker for them. Also, he used to play for Baltimore. Of course, he sucked back then. Um, but you know, maybe it's maybe the fan base deserves to you know see what could have been uh, when he was in his prime um, and get him for you know a three four year deal. I don't I don't see Peter Angelos dishing out a seven year deal, but I think certainly you know he would be a massive upgrade for a team like that. Yeah, and it's interesting because we talked about all these different teams. Uh, that can make a play- playoff push in the National League, and most of them have made moves to get better this offseason. I mean, the Cardinals, Marcelo Zuna, uh, Brewers got you know Lorenzo Cain and someone else. Who'd they get? Lorenzo Cain, another outfielder. Uh, they, saw, they traded for Christian Yelich. And they got Christian Yelich, wow. Um, <laughs> Both then, for five then, years, too. And the Cubs go get you, Darvish. I mean, you, you got teams making moves out the wazoo right now, and... You know, there's one team that's not making a move, and it's the Washington Nationals. <laughs> well, the Nats are, look at themselves, you know, 95-win team, okay? They're content, um, and, and that's the thing right now. Jake Arrieta National Rumors broke this morning about the Nats are apparently interested in signing him. So, you know, they are looking let's in the direction. In, but I don't know. invest a billion dollars yeah, in that rotation. <laughs> well, right now, uh, we've got $385 million involved in two of our starters. I mean, the Nats do. So the fact that, you know... Um, Scherzer and Strasburg are locked up for you know the foreseeable future. Scherzer um, another four years. Strasburg has two years before an opt out. Um, but at the same time, you know, adding area to that mix, we've seen the Nats do it before um, with trying to bring in you know help when they don't need it. You know, it was when they signed Scherzer, they already had Jordan Zimmerman, they already had Strasburg, uh, Roark. They were looked at as one of the, you know Roark was actually bumped out of that rotation. You know, it's when Doug Fister was on the team. The Nats have done that a lot in the past. They've they've filled. Needs they don't have yes. when they actually have needs. Well, they look at, uh, you know, adding a strength to a strength mm-hmm. is seen as, you know, boosting this team's chances. But the thing is, the Nats appear content with what they have. They brought back a couple of bench guys. Um, they signed uh, Brandon Kinsler to a, a pretty team-friendly deal to, you know, anchor that rotation, the bullpen. Uh, and they have A.J. Cole slotted to fill that number five spot, who hasn't been great by any means, but is you know, risen up through the prospect rankings, has... Uh, been up and down MLB career. They see him as, you know, giving him a full year to prove himself, you know, maybe he has that opportunity. The thing with the Nats is the money situation. They already exceeded luxury tax last year and are very, very close, if not already over exceeding it this year. So if they want to bring in Arietta, they're almost certainly going to pass that luxury mark um, and go into next year's free agent class when Bryce Harper hits free agency, guys like Manny Machado, Andrew Miller, Zach Britton, all these um, incredible names hitting free agency, and they're going to be so set back because they're already, while a lot of money's coming off the books, um, they aren't really, you know, going to be able to dish a lot out because they're going to have luxury tax penalties, if they, especially if they exceed that number a third time. So Nats, definitely cautious about Arietta, but if, you know, Scott Boris has Ted, Lear- uh, uh, Ted Lerner's ear for sure, uh, that, you know, he went to him about Strasburg, he went to him about Scherzer, um, he represents Bryce Harper, uh, a whole bunch of players, Gio Gonzalez on the roster. I mean, you know, the Nats and Scott Boris have a very close relationship. So I could certainly see it happening. I don't know if I'd like it happening, but I think it would certainly boost their chances of, you know, making it deeper in the postseason. Because, I mean, the Nats have lost three of three uh, playoff appearances um, since they have, uh, you know, emerged as contenders. Sorry, four of four. They, they haven't advanced in any of them. Uh, and so they, they kind of need to, you know, make an upgrade. Where What's the difference between last year's team and this year's team? Is it really just going to be health? Um, you know, they had all their stars by the time they were in the NL- NLDS. They weren't missing anybody. Harper had gotten hurt uh, midway, th- uh, late in the season, but was back. So I don't see, you know, a glaring need. But at the same time, do you see all these shortfalls in the playoffs as a reason to make an upgrade now? And I can certainly, you know, be convinced either way. 
Yeah, the thing with the Nationals that's got to concern you is they really, a, a lot of other teams got better, made improvements, and made some moves. The Nationals were kind of just staying still, and it's kind of that philosophy. If you're not getting better, you might be getting worse compared to those other teams. Um, but with the Nationals, they don't really, besides possibly the bullpen, they haven't really had in the last few years a glaring weakness on the roster. Like, this is a position we absolutely have to address. I mean, they could have... Definitely uh, gotten like a lockdown closer last year. They never really had that guy. Well, Sean but- Doolittle did turn out to be a very, very solid closer. I mean, his his numbers uh, were, were incredible throughout the time he was pitching. Ryan Madsen, who they also acquired in the deal, was a great setup man. Bullpen was a huge weakness last year. They addressed the trade deadline, brought back Brandon Kinsler over the offseason. So I think... Um, you know, they addressed it there. They, they, the way they see it is like you said earlier, there's 162 games in a season. They could go into the year with the team they have right now. And if something proves to be really bad, like catcher, Matt Wieters was horrible last year. Um, and, why not, why and Jose Lobaton's gone. Why not look into a guy like Jonathan Lucroy, who's a free agent? Because the thing is, is you already have 10.5 million locked up to, uh, Wieters right now. So do they want to spend 11 million on a player who's going to be on their bench? They're already platooning him with Pedro Severino. Uh, who is their up-and-coming catching prospect, hasn't really had a chance to prove himself in the majors, and they're hoping they can kind of showcase him, see how he does, um, getting more playing time. But that's no safe bet. That's why they've been so involved with the Marlins and JT Real Muto. However, they won't give up their top two prospects, Victor Robles or Juan Soto for him. So they're kind of you know waiting around um, to see if, one, the Marlins drop uh, their asking price, or two, to see how Weeders does, maybe as a bounce-back year. I mean, this is a former All-Star a uh, guy who is, you know, used to be among the best catchers in the game. Hopefully, you know, they're hoping the way Mike Rizzo, general manager, said, said it was, he wants to see how Weeders will f- perform if he doesn't have to play as often throughout the week, you know, getting more rest between starts, that kind of thing. So I think the Nats see it as they have a couple months to kind of test the waters. You know, maybe they get a huge injury and they're going to have to replace an outfielder. Maybe uh, Weeders turns out to be great and, and acquiring a catcher would have, you know, been a waste of money. So they see it as there's no pressing need that they need to address before the season starts and they're okay with their roster right now right and they could make a move at the deadline i didn't like a couple years ago when they lost mark melanson i thought that was kind of a big loss for them um but with this team i just think they might have hit their ceiling this is probably the last year they're gonna have with harper and i do think that'll be the end of an era like they've gotta somehow recognize that yes there are young pieces on this roster but like trey turner is probably the future um, but with Harper, this is the last year. I would have liked to seen them possibly make a move. But the thing is with baseball, uh, they'll probably win. Nationals are probably not a lock to win their division, but they had they were 20 games better than the second-place team in the NL East last year. So you can kind of pencil them in there. But a team like the Diamondbacks last year came out of nowhere. They were 69-93 in 93 in 2016. Flip that around to 93-69 in 2017. So there are teams, and it's who knows who it's going to be this year, but there might be a team that's going to kind of come out of nowhere. And with the Nationals, I just you know, think they might have missed their window. Well, they've got another year, and I think that they're built for the future, even if they lose Harper. I mean, they have top prospect Victor Robles, who's a consensus top five MLB prospect. So I think him, you know, taking Harper's spot in the outfield wouldn't present a huge downgrade, a definitely a downgrade. But Victor Robles was considered the next Andrew McCutcheon, which, you know, Andrew McCutcheon at his best is, you know, not Bryce Harper at his best, but he's certainly an MVP candidate, and that's all the Nats would take um, uh, if they could get it. But... Anyway, we'll go ahead and move on from MLB. We, t- we were supposed to talk about the Cubs and you, Darvish. We talked about the Nats for 15 minutes. So. Okay, it was a lot more about the Cubs than Jake Arrieta than it was the Nats. Um, but big game this weekend, the Cavaliers taking down the Celtics, 121-99. to uh, New look Cavs. This was the Paul Pierce day for the uh, Celtics, so they were, you know, had some extra motivation maybe to perform, weren't able to come through. Kyrie Irving held just 18 points, um, and LeBron, of course, fueling this this new roster. Kevin, what did you see in this game that you think bodes well for the Cavs in the future? I mean, the, the, the culture, I mean, it was just a different change. I mean, you saw LeBron James, you know, instantly bonding with his new teammates. I mean, he had 24 points, 10 assists, 8 rebounds in 3 quarters of basketball. He was very efficient. Um, their whole starting lineup, is even Seti Osman, was a, a plus-minus in the positive. Uh, Tristan Thompson had another great game. He had a plus-18, plus-minus on the court. I really like what I saw um, out of them. And then, you know, Larry Nance, I think he brings them a rejuvenated bounce down low that they didn't have before. Um, Jordan Clarkson, I mean, 
I don't know if you guys watched the game, but he had some transition threes that were just, you know, this is something the team didn't have. I think they're a lot quicker than they were um, before the trade deadline, and, and I really like the way this team is trending. Um, I'm not sure. I think they've dig, dug themselves a, too big of a hole um, to get that number one seed in the Eastern Conference, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't think it matters. I think they've really showed, I know it's one game, but I think they really showed that they're, you know, much quicker and they got younger and they still have the best player in the world. Um, I still think they're better than Boston. Um, and, you know, I, I like George Hill coming in. And the first quote he said was that we're a bunch of Robins to, to LeBron's Batman. So he's basically doing something that Isaiah Thomas refused to do for, you know, months with the Cavaliers is concede to LeBron James and, and admit that it's his team. Um, and, you know, I really, I really like uh, the culture that, you know, George Hill and, and Jordan Clarkson and Larry Nance, um, even Rodney Hill looked good yesterday. I, I like the culture they've, they're building in Cleveland, and, you know, it might not keep LeBron past this season, but they're much better um, for the long haul for this year. Yeah, they definitely got younger uh, in that trade, and, um, you know, I've always been a big fan of Larry Nance Jr. I actually drafted him in fantasy this year and have kind of had him on my roster all year. I, I think, you know, he definitely adds a dynamic down low that they didn't have before, um, you know, especially losing Kevin Love, they really needed to supplant his lost production. So I, I, I liked how they looked. I think part of this loss kind of was the Celtics, uh, you know, not really playing to their best. Um, they struggled from the three-point line, shooting only 26% um, and had 15 turnovers in the game. So I think those that came into play, but I mean, this is a blowout in all regards. I mean, the, the Cavs easily outplayed the Celtics, and I think the rest of the East should be very scared. The East is playing very well right now. All the top five seeds in the East have all won at least six of their last 10 games. So every team is playing, you know, from the Pacers up in the standings are playing well. Um, but I think that the, you know, six games out of first place, the Raptors actually now passed the Celtics with a half game up for the number one seed. Um, I think, you know, the Cavs, I'm not hot, super high on them yet. I mean, it's only one game, obviously, uh, you know, I'll bite one game against probably the best team in the East, but one game isn't going to tell me, you know, the Cavs are back, but it is going to tell me they are a threat. And I think that, um, you know, come playoff time, you give this team enough time to build chemistry. I think they could easily be, you know, just like last year, the favorites in the East, despite not being that number one seed. Sure. No doubt. Uh, I think this Cavaliers team is scary. After those moves they've made, I they just look like a whole new team. And we know, obviously, they got younger. They got more athletic. They will probably be better on defense. But as Kevin alluded to, the main thing that I noticed from them was their chemistry. They actually look like they enjoyed playing together. Uh, there's less in, There's less just like conflict and you can see them playing looser and playing freer there was a point in the game jordan clarkson first game of the team comes down hits a transition three celtics call timeout and the bench explodes like they're happy for him they are playing it's almost like a breath of fresh air these new guys were coming in and the old guys like Derek rose and wayne wade who left it just feels like a new rejuvenated team which is a good sign to see and even if they do lose LeBron in the offseason they have something now instead of a bunch of guys who are kind of shells of themselves around LeBron in like a desperation mode to win now this is an interesting setup with the team and I love uh, what the general manager did Kobe Altman because he really uh, positioned this team and put them in pretty much uh, the best possible place both now and for the future. Yeah, um, and, and to kind of go off, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Great. To kind of to go off what you're saying, I mean, yes, they looked very good. It's really easy to look positive in good moments, um, like when like you were talking about with Jordan Clarkson. But, you know, there was moments where George Hill, you know, struggled on a defensive play or something. LeBron would, you know, grab his hand, take him to the huddle, tap his head, and, you know, it was just right back to work. Whereas, you know, when Isaiah Thomas was there and some of those old, other players that they traded away, it was – it's kind of like, well, dude, what are you doing? Like, like how are you not making that play? Like, they they weren't playing together as a team defensively, um, and now you know they're picking each other up, and, and you know it's it's amazing. I, I I'm ex I'm excited to see the playoffs now. Um, you know, I was ready to count the Cavs out, but you know, after these trades and watching them play as a cohesive unit yesterday, uh, I'm excited. You know, you have to give the Cavs front office a ton of credit. It seems like every year when there's a problem with a LeBron team. Uh, they've, they've gone out and made a series of moves, you know, to, to give him what he needed. You know, when he needed shooters on the outside, they acquired uh, J.R. Smith and Kyle Korver. 
I mean, this year when there was a character problem, they brought in, you know, they got rid of the, the cancers in the, the locker room and, and brought in some fresh faces. I mean, they're really, you know, catering to LeBron, of course, because he's the best player in the world. But I got to give credit to them and I got to give credit to Ty Lue. I mean, Lou, you know, is not really the coach of this team. We all know that. LeBron runs the Cavs, especially when it comes to basketball. But he is tasked with making sure that the chemistry is working and, and you know, being a leader for the, these guys, being, you know, somebody who can help, you know, work out the kinks. And while things were not great with the players that were there before, you know, to come in to bring all these new guys and immediately get them to buy into the system, that's 100% on Ty Lue. I think that, um, you know, it's, it's something that gets really forgotten uh, when you think of LeBron team. You're never thinking of, you know, uh, Eric Spolstra as the, the, the heart behind the heat when they won those titles. But, you know, Spolstra was able to, you know, deal with the you know, personalities of LeBron, Wade, and Bosh, you know, to be able to balance that around. Mario Chalmers was a personality in itself. So for, for, for Lou to really be able to, you know, help this team create a new identity midseason, I mean, he deserves a ton of credit. I think LeBron, like kind of what you said, well, we never talk about Tyron Lue. I think his role is certainly important as the leader of the team, like at least in name. But LeBron does, he kind of is the franchise. Uh, And I saw on ESPN this morning, his pregame message uh, to the team, George Hill said that LeBron's like, who cares about mistakes, missed shots? Who cares about that? We don't want it to be perfect. And he said, George Hill said there was no judgment on the team today. And that is so important. When you're coming into a new situation, a new city, new team, with, just to be able to play loose and relaxed, that's exactly what I saw. Uh, I thought that was definitely the tone set for the team. And with this Cavaliers team, uh, I think they. I think it was very impressive. They come out there in their first game and they pretty much shred the league's best statistical defense and on paper, the Celtics do have that number one defense in the league, but who's going to guard LeBron? It's the same question again. He cruised to 24 points, eight rebounds, 10 assists. He almost, like the expression goes, messed around and got a triple-double. Like, that's pretty much what it was. Um, and with this team, I think uh, they're a lot more cohesive. The chemistry is better. We know that. And I think this team is should be again the favorite to win the east i don't want to hear about toronto boston should be taken seriously but this cavaliers team is definitely special uh and i think one of the things not many people are talking about but what i noticed is J.R. smith went off in not only the minnesota game last week but also in this game because he has played well uh been i believe an all-star in his career at some point and uh, he's been he's sixth not sixth man of the year. Like yeah, sixth sixth man of the year. Uh, he's not a guy a lot of people talk about. But yesterday he was six for seven from the floor, hit some big threes, and he really uh, is playing like with even though these guys brought in, he's like, hey, don't put me on the bench just yet, right? I mean, they brought in younger guys, guys who maybe might be better defensively or longer, more athletic. But J.R. Smith has certainly had something to say about that. Uh, I thought Jordan Clarkson was impressive. 17 points in 23 minutes. Seamless transition into his new team. And, of course, I think he can definitely provide a spark for the team, as can Larry Nance Jr. But the difference in the game, it seems like this is the difference in all NBA games. Who's going to shoot better from three? Cavaliers, 16 for 30 from behind the arc. Celtics, 10 10 for 38. So that's pretty much... I, I guarantee if you look at the box score pretty much every NBA game, who wins that three-point contest, in a sense, that's the team who's going to win the game. But yeah, and I, I like what you said about J.R. Smith, because you know, throughout his career, he, he's been one of the most up-and-down shooters um, in NBA history. I mean, he, he thrives off you know, you know, hot stretches. And in this game, he was 6-for-7 th- uh, from the field, 3-for-4 from three. And I think you, know, you surround him by a bunch of players that are playing well, and he'll start to play well. I think you know his struggles this year were part because the whole team was struggling as a whole. I think he's a very you know contagious prone player, um, and and once that culture you know filters into his body, he starts hitting shots left and right. Um, and you know I, I think their depth um, is something that's really going to help them. I mean Kyle Korver had 30 points the night before this um, when they played the Hawks uh, without any of these four players. They basically had seven eight players on roster, and Kyle Korver went off for 30 points. So you know. Up and down this roster, there's shooters, and then there's LeBron James, and you know I really like the direction they're heading in. Yeah, and can we talk for a minute about 
What a difference a year makes for Isaiah Thomas. I mean, a year ago, an MVP candidate on the Celtics. Now he's a rotation player on the Lakers, uh, a team that's not even going to be in the playoffs this season. I mean, you know, for him to fall off such a, a huge cliff, I mean, did any of you see this happening? Yeah, you know, there was a lot of questions after his hip injury. You know, a player of his size, the way he has to score, where he has to, you know, create space, especially at that size. Uh, I mean, I, I could see the struggles coming. Um, also, you know, I don't think Cleveland was the was probably one of the worst fits in in the whole National Basketball Association for him to, you know, come in off an injury um, and, and really get his shots. And I think, you know, we saw him with the Lakers yesterday. I think he had 22 points, six assists. He looked really good um, when he was handling the ball once again. I don't think he's a spot-up type of guy. And, you know, last year with the Celtics, he had to create everything on his own, and, and that's how he is. Um, but I don't think Cleveland is the right situation. I think he'll end up turning his career around, uh, be about 20 points a game. Not, you know, not hit the Boston Celtic type, but I think he's still, you know, a, a great basketball player, and I think he's got good things to come. Yeah, he had 22 last night in his Lakers debut, which is a good sign for him. And I I do kind of feel bad for Isaiah Thomas. If you think about this guy, he's 5'7", 5'8", 5'9", whatever he is. You see it different places everywhere. But he was the final pick the 60th pick in the 2011 draft. He bounces around the league. No one really wants him. Finds a home in Boston who pretty much picks him up for nothing. And he turns into not only an all-star, not only an MVP candidate, but a folk hero. And he's this, like, cultural icon in Boston. And not even 12 months later, he's, you know, discarded kind of as, like, a second thought, which is really he can unfortunate. Thank, he can thank Kyrie Irving for that. Yeah. And, and looking back at this Kyrie Irving deal, when, I, when it first came out, uh, I was like, wow, this is a pretty even trade, I think, for both teams, looking at those pieces. And I thought one of the most important pieces is that 2018 Brooklyn pick coming up this year. That could be huge for Boston. The guy, or I'm sorry, it could be huge for the Cavaliers to replace LeBron James if he leaves, or to uh, you know compliment him if he decides to stay. But uh, I think for Isaiah Thomas, he said last year, you know, bring out the Brinks truck, pay me, you know, however many million. He's like, someone's gonna give me a max, and I don't know who's gonna give him a max contract now. Unfortunately, uh, I I know he played well last night with the Lakers, but I don't know how that fit is with Lonzo Ball there, who appears to be the future, but maybe not. Who knows? We know that the Lakers cleared out cap room for two max contract players in the offseason. A lot of people have been speculating it could be LeBron James and Paul George, but who knows? Um, who knows where the Lakers are headed? And for Isaiah Thomas, uh, I don't know where uh, he goes from here. Uh, I don't know if there's a contender they'll want to pounce on him, but the Lakers might end up. I've heard people say that if LeBron came to Los Angeles, I don't know if he'd want to deal with uh, LeVar Ball and Lonzo. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure he'd love to play with Lonzo, who's still really I'm young. I'm sure LeBron James tells LeVar Ball to shut up, and LeVar Ball will shut up. It's, it's, it's interesting. LeBron James. And I want to talk about LeVar Ball as little as humanly possible. But not, that guy does not deserve media coverage. He, he really doesn't. But um, so that could – the only reason why I bring it up is it could be interesting uh, seeing Lonzo traded after all the speculation of him as the future of the Lakers. So uh, I think if anything, you know – they're keeping Lonzo Ball around. You'll see when he comes back from injury. You know, he's currently out, I believe, with a knee sprain. So when he comes back, Isaiah Thomas is going to get shifted to the you know the bench, probably a sixth man off the bench. There's no way that they play Isaiah Thomas over Lonzo Ball. I mean, they want to see what they have out of him. Um, but I think, you know, it's very interesting because uh, they were really setting themselves up for the 2019 free agency with because uh, that was, you know, with this Clarkson contract on their on their hands, they, they couldn't open up two max spots for the summer. Um, but, you know, this was a genius deal by their front office, opening up two max spots. And, you know, we'll see. I mean, Paul George looks pretty comfortable in OKC, so we'll see if he makes that move. Um, and, you know, I, everyone's quick to say LeBron's leaving. I wouldn't jump on that bandwagon just yet. You know, I, I think if they make another deep playoff run, he's going to stick around. Um, but we'll see. I think it's about a 50-50 chance LeBron stays. But, you know, I, I like the, the moves the Lakers made. Um, you know, I definitely think the Cavs got better, but the Lakers definitely got better for the future. Um, it wasn't about this year for them. And, you know, yeah. we'll see. Should be interesting. Uh, one more thing I noticed about the Celtics in yesterday's game. 
Uh, Kyrie starts the game three for three, but he finished, he only played 26 minutes. Of course, the game kind of got out of hand, finished with only 18 points. Um, but so I definitely think Kyrie is the leader of this team, um, but he's going to need some support. Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown played 59 minutes combined. They only scored 14 points. And that's the thing that kind of concerns me with the Celtics team. No one, after they lost Gordon Hayward, no one really expected them to be this good this quickly with such a young uh, cast of players and so little turnover from last year, carrying over only a few players uh, from that team that made it in the conference finals. So in come the postseason, I'm not sure uh, in these bigger games how effective they'll be, and time will tell. But I definitely think Cavaliers should be heavy favorites to win the East again. And it's going to be interesting, but the Eastern Conference, we know it's a little weaker, certainly not as deep, and I love the moves the Cavaliers made. I think they're in a great position. Yeah, you know, one bright spot over the last couple of weeks for the Celtics has got to be Terry Rozier. I mean, he had a triple-double. He scored over 30 points in another game. I mean, he had 21 points, 9 rebounds, 5 assists in this game, 6-for-7 uh, from the line, 6-for-15 from the field. I really like what I've seen out of him. You know, if Kyrie's struggling a little bit, I think Terry Rozier can pick up his slack. Um, but the one thing I wanted to say was, you know, George Hill definitely going to give this Celtics team trouble. The Celtics team trouble in the playoffs. Uh, they were one for, I believe, eight when George Hill was guarding a shooter yesterday. Uh, that's not the defense, you know, they want to see. I mean, they the Cavs had Isaiah Thomas, who, you know, teams would shoot seven for seven on Isaiah Thomas. Um, I, I really think the defensive presence um, with the point guard was really what the Cavs needed, and, and George Hill gives them that, especially when they have to play the Celtics in a seven-game series. Yep. Before we go, I wanted to talk quick college basketball. We're just going to talk about number one teams uh, in UVA and Villanova. Both teams are 23-2 and two and suffered pretty crushing defeats uh, over the weekend with Villanova losing to St. John's and UVA dropping a, a highly contested matchup with Virginia Tech in overtime. Which team, okay, so Villanova comes into the week ranked number one, and until they lost, they were going to be that number one team. I mean, just, you know, the makeup of the team, the history, this, this, they, they looked like the better team than UVA, despite UVA being a great defensive unit. However, St. Uh, Villanova loses, you think, okay, all UVA has to do is win out the weekend, and they're going to be number one, and then they go and lose to Tech. Which loss do you think is more glaring, and who do you think is the better team? All right, so that's, uh, that's not even a question in my mind, because Virginia Tech, um, you know, they started the, the season 0-2 in ACC play. They've now won 7 of 10 in the ACC, which is arguably the best conference in basketball. They're, they're a tournament team, no doubt. They're going to be, a, you know, a 7-8 seed in the tournament. So Virginia losing to them is not that concerning. Um, it was a great game. It was probably the best college basketball game I watched all year. Um, but, you know, and then, you know, Villanova loses to St. John's, who, guess what their record is in conference? 1-11. They are 1-11 in the Big East, which is nowhere near the competition of the ACC. I think Villanova's loss is much more glaring uh, than Virginia's. You know, I'm not worried about Virginia at all. They have one of the best defenses that I've seen in college basketball in the last five years. And Virginia Tech, Virginia Tech just played, their, played the game they need to play um, and showed the rest of the country how you beat Virginia. You play them in a low-scoring game, um, and you make them hit shots. And, and Kyle Guy and Ty Jerome just time after time missed shots the other night. I believe Kyle Guy... Um, Kyle Guy was 5 for 21 from the field, and Ty Jerome um, was 4 for 14. So they're combined a 9 for 35. You know, those two guys are crucial in the success of the UVA basketball program, and Virginia Tech made those two guys beat them, and it just didn't happen. And, I mean, they shot 34.4%. At one point in the second half with one minute left, it was 19 to 16. I mean, this Virginia Tech, I, I give props to Buzz Williams in this game, and he just played it to a T. Um, but I'm not concerned about Virginia. I think they're going to end up being the number one overall seed in the NCAA tournament, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. But um, I think this speaks more to Virginia Tech's talent, and, you know, Villanova, I think, should be still the number one team after this week, but, you know, we'll see. Yeah, I'm in complete agreement with Kevin. You look at UVA's loss to VT, not only is it a rivalry game, it's a very good team who had won 15 in a row, I believe. This is the definition of a good loss. Even though they were at home, it's against a very good team, very close. They had a chance. They had the momentum going in overtime. And even though they probably should have came away with it, and they could have been the number one team in the AP poll for the first time since, I believe, 1983, this is, uh, this is a, it's not a big deal. It's, it's a tiny blemish on the record. And, you know, they're going to rebound from this. Um, 
and who knows? Uh, I they'll be a number one seed, and as far as where they'll, how far they'll go in the tournament, and where they'll end up, I think a lot of that depends, of course, on the bracket where they get placed, who's in their quadrant of the bracket. But the one thing I'll say about UVA is, and just a little bracket advice: when you live in a state, assuming you live in a state like Virginia, when you know a lot of people are going to be picking the Cats, might be smart to go the other way. And the reason why I think that about this UVA team is, with their style of play, very low scoring, defense first, scoring second, which is a great style of play, and you'll win a lot of games that way. But in the tournament, when you're getting every single team's best shot, and you don't hold huge leads because when you, it's a low-scoring game, like 40-32 at one point, you know, couple threes, couple possessions, and the other team is right back in the game, then it puts the pressure on UVA. I do not think UVA can win six games in the tournament. I don't think they're going to win a national championship playing this style of play. I'll say it now. I'll say it again. I don't think this style of play really translates to a deep run in the tournament. See, it's interesting you say that, though, because they played arguably the best offensive team in the country uh, a couple weeks ago with Duke, and they dominated Duke. They, they held them to, you know, 60 points um, in the 60s. Well, only one by two, you know, and, say, and Duke, say they dominated, and they weren't, they weren't able to, to... To hold a team that averaged over 85 points a game to only 63 points is pure domination on the defensive side of the ball. Defensive side. You, but I'm talking, you, I'm talking, you know, in the this whole weekend, game. This weekend, Virginia Tech is 15th in the country in offensive rating. UVA held them to 61 points in overtime. It was really only 50. I mean, they. I, I like what you said where, you know, you got to be able to blow out teams, and I don't think they can blow out teams. I think they just, you know, they, they, they've figured it out how to win down the stretch. But, you know, I, I have to go against you because I, I think in the tournament, um, you know, defense can win. I think, you know, some of these high-scoring teams, you know, really get exposed when they can't play defense. And Duke's been a team that everyone wants to pick, you know, Final Four or Elite Eight, but they don't play defense as, you know, as well as UVA plays. And, you know, it takes a 9-for-35 performance out of Ty Jerome and Kyle Guy for them to lose a game. If that's what it takes, I don't think... The thing, the thing for me is, is when you're a good defensive team over offensive, you're actually playing safer. Because it's easier, if you're a good defensive team, it's easier to stay consistent being good defensively than if you're a great offensive team to stay consistent being good offensively. Everyone has off nights, okay? Every, there's going to be times when Ty Jerome, Kyle Guy aren't going to be making shots in Devin Hall. When you have Kyle Guy and Devin Hall of an off night, you, you don't necessarily, you know, who scores? Where but, are you going to get your points from? And that's my concern. But but, but there's no there's not that many points you need to get because you played such a defensive of course, game. You of only got to score 40 points. But that's the and thing. In this game, they almost beat a tournament caliber team. Arguably their worst offensive output of the year. They should have won that game. They're up four with, what, 30 seconds left? Yeah. left. They should have won that game. And this, this shouldn't even be a conversation right now. But, you know, the fact that their two best players, their two highest scorers, shot nine for 35 – and they had the game in their hands, just shows, you know, they really need a catastrophic fall apart to lose a game in the tournament. But 9 for 35 is a catastrophic fall apart, and they lost. I'm just, look, look, listen to me. I'm a very big fan of UVA in going, you know, deep in the play of the tournament. I think they're going to be at least a Final Four team. I would, you know, put it money on it right now. They're going to make the Final Four. I, w- I do not doubt I, that I, at all. I just don't like putting money on UVA in the tournament. I, I think they're very, they're very good, and their defense, you know, Definitely can take them far in the tournament. I just they're kind of like the Washington Nationals to me. I just never put money on them in the playoffs. It's nothing against you. I'm not trying to pull. I'm not trying to you know roast you right now. But I'm just saying like there's there's certain teams you don't bet on until they win. And this is one of those teams. You know, no one bet on Villanova before because they would always heartbreak people in the tournament and they won a national championship. And now it's like it's easy to pick Villanova. James has something to say, but you know I just can't bet on you yet. Yeah, I. The thing, I hate this argument of, oh, you can't bet on this team. Like, LeBron's a choker. We see, this is one of the worst arguments in sports. And there's a lot of bad ones. But I hate this, oh, they're not going to, the Cubs, oh, they can't win and then they win. It's like, oh, I can't pick them to win until they win. That's not what it is for UVA with me. I know they've had some disappointing performances in the past. And there's absolutely no doubt they're one of the best teams in the nation. There's no doubt they've earned this position where they are. And they should be a one seed by all means. I know they played Duke really well a couple weeks ago. But my whole thing goes back to the nature of the NCAA tournament. You've got 68 teams getting in. You need to win six single elimination games to win it all. And I don't know if their style of play 
where it's low scoring, a team comes in, no one's expecting them to win, and I'm not saying they're going to lose in the first or second round necessarily, but when a team comes in hot, maybe they got a couple shooters, you have this one great player, gets hot, and let's say you're up uh, 54 to 46 with you know three minutes to go, boom, 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 couple threes right back in the game, and this is what... Uh, and then what happens is UVA, the heavy favorite, they start getting nervous. They start playing tight. We saw that a little bit yesterday. And I don't know. Um, I don't. I, this isn't a team I would put a lot of money on. And it's not that they haven't done it before. It's that their style of play, where it's a low-scoring game, the problem with it being low-scoring is that team always, if they are able to get hot for a couple possessions, even a one-minute run can swing the momentum in the game, the flow of the game. But... but- the way you have to look at it also is in a low-scoring game, a 10-point lead is essentially a 20-25 point lead. And so when really, yeah, they're not blowing out a team by 25 like most teams, like Duke's going to beat someone 85 to 50. Them beating someone 50 to 35, I mean, that's that's just as bad as a blowout because, you know, it's, it's really hard to put – I mean, Virginia Tech had – I watched this game every minute of this game, and, you know, they would grind out a 9-point lead. It would take minutes – to get nine points. It was, I mean, it's ridiculous. Right. And I, I just, I, I'm torn because I, I really would want to pick UVA in the tournament. But then again, I do get what you're saying. Yeah. Um, you know, they catch a team that's on fire in the NCAA tournament. It's a single elimination. I mean, anything can happen. Yeah, I mean, anything can happen. I mean, we saw Gonzaga ride, you know, hot streaks all the way to. It's interesting that we're talking about this too because Virginia Tech could easily be an eight or nine seed. You know, that falls into that type of team that, that they would play in the they second round. Edge, you know, exactly. We, we beat so, this team you know, in their place. And the whole thing with college basketball, what you've really got to do is take the emotion out of it. I know you're a UVA fan, put your pom-poms down. Like, if you're picking, if you're thinking about who am I going to pick to win the tournament, uh, you've got to, I don't know. I, I probably wouldn't go with UVA. Depends on the matchups they get. But if they play against a team, you say, like, oh, a 50-35 to 35 win at the end of the day, uh, like that's a comfortable lead for UVA, but it's still only a couple of possessions. That lead could be gone in two or three minutes. Um, and if you play against a team with some shooters, if you play against a team with tempo, they push it against UVA, they make them uncomfortable. Uh, if you get them a little bit uh, flustered in the final minutes, who knows how they're going to fare. AP just released, right before we're going to end the show here, but AP just released the top 25. UVA got the most votes for number one, uh, and so they are at one. Villanova drops down to three with Michigan State moving up to two. Miles Bridges, of course, one of the best players in college basketball. Did you see the um, end of that Purdue game? Uh, I saw they lost, so I didn't get to watch it. No, they won. Michigan State beat Purdue. Oh, I was talking about Purdue, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bridges yeah. hit a, a three-pointer mm-hmm. with one second left to win the game. Yep. That, was, that was incredible. I really like the Michigan State team as well. I think, you know, behind this whole you know sexual assault scandal, I think they're really, you know, coming together as a unit and mm-hmm. playing, playing hard for Izzo. Um, you know, credit to him. Yeah, well, that is going to do it for us today. James, thank you so much for coming on. Always insightful uh, to have you on, so thank you for being here. Uh, Kevin, that will do it for us. Everybody, don't forget to like and subscribe to us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at Pure Sports Net. Like us on Facebook and check out our website at puresportsnetwork.com. I'm Matt Weirich. This is Kevin Haswell signing off. Thank you all so much for joining us and have a good one. Thanks, guys.